Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Good morning. I am Janice Leibovitz. You are my People of the Book, and it is great to be back after a two-week break. I hope that you had a wonderful Pesach. Passover, Easter, whatever you celebrated. I hope that you were with people that you loved, doing things that you enjoyed. And I hope that you read lots of books, of course. Um, as I said, great to be back with you on air. And I have a really, really interesting guest for you this morning. My guest is Tim Jenkin. Tim, welcome to the show. Good morning, Janice. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you with me. And for those of you who have not been following my Facebook feed, who have not been following um, the show's Facebook page, Tim Jenkin has written a book. He He's written quite a few versions of this book, if I'm not mistaken. It's called Escape from Pretoria. And if you are thinking that you know what that means, yes, Tim might be a name that's familiar to to some of you. Tim broke out of what was then, I, I think it's called something different now, what was then Pretoria Central Prison. I think it's now CMAX. Am I correct, Tim? I'm not exactly sure, but even at that time, Pretoria Central was really a complex of prisons in Pretoria, and ours was a small prison within that complex called Pretoria Local Prison, which was a special prison for uh, white male political prisoners. So, you remember, this is the era of apartheid, so everyone had their own prison. And yes, because uh, that, that was, yeah, back <laughs> in 1979. Yes, that was, uh, as you say, back in 1979. Yes. And, um, yes, you wrote this book, and, and I know that you have written various versions, and this is the latest version. And for those who, who might be film fundies, there is actually a film called Escape from Pretoria, and playing yourself, Tim Jenkin, is Daniel Radcliffe, who those in the know will know is Harry Potter. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to mention the the South African, the the appalling South African accents in the film that I did manage to to get to watch. Originally, I wasn't able to. My Amazon Prime account said it wasn't available in this area, which I found quite ironic. Um, but I did manage to to watch most of the film. It's exciting and it's it's you know quite a thriller. But the truth is, it's not just an adventure film. That, that's really not the crux of the film. Give us um, a very, very brief background before we get into the real nitty-gritty of it later on. Give us a brief background as to how you actually um, became a political prisoner. Well, it's it's a very long story. I don't quite know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into the long part, the long story part, um, yes. a bit well, later. I grew up, I grew up as a normal uh, white South African, you know, with a normal um, 
the prejudices that you would have expected to find during that era. And it's only when I went abroad after finishing school that I suddenly found out about my own country, knew absolutely nothing about it, hadn't, didn't have a single political idea in my head. And, um, you know, when I was in, uh, in the UK, people challenged me about this apartheid thing that I didn't even know what it was. And I started to see um, documentaries on BBC and other channels they had over there. And uh, and uh, at first I didn't believe what I was seeing. I thought it was all just propaganda. But later on uh, I read some books and had discussions with people and I realized it really was quite as bad as what I was being shown. Then I came back to South Africa and... Um, started a university course at UCT studying uh, sociology, which sort of took me, gave me an opportunity to go into townships for the first time. I didn't even know where these places were. And in fact, in those days, you couldn't really get into many of them. You had to have a permit just to go in as a white person. So I started, we started to find out things and I met other students at university who were trying to find out what's going on in our country, trying to understand the history, an alternative history of South Africa, apart from the one that we were taught in school when South Africa started in 1652 when Jan van Riebeck landed at the Cape and nothing else. <laughs> And um, we taught a, ver a version of it, a certain version. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it was white history, basically, and yes. black people were sort of portrayed as troublemakers, almost like the wild animals in Kruger Park, you know. Yeah, the villains. Mm. Anyway, so then I got my degree, and I had met a, a friend there who was to be my uh, fellow... Well, when we were arrested, the two of us were arrested together because of our activities. So we decided to go abroad once again to find out more about the liberation struggle in South Africa. It was really just an investigation tour. You know, we wanted to find out more. We just felt we couldn't use our degrees just to get a job and then settle in and then just carry on like normal white South Africans. We felt we had to find out and, and see what we could do about it. So we travelled uh, to Europe and we went to all the offices of the different um, band organisations in London, but the ANC seemed to us the one that seemed to be the most organised. And um, so we attended meetings and uh, spoke to many people there and they tried to educate us in the history of our country and gave us books and we attended political meetings. And after about a year, and year, year about a year, year and a half or something, uh, we said we're going back to South Africa and they said to us, well, if you're going back, how about doing something, you know? So we said, well, what does doing something mean? <laughs> <laughs> And they said, well, you know, you're actually white South African and um, strange or ironic as it might seem, you're actually in a better position to carry out activities in the name of 
um, the liberation organizations than black people are because you're privileged. You know, you can you can buy equipment, you can do things, go places that black people can't do. So they said you could start up a um, a cell, a kind of propaganda cell, where you print uh, documents that we will send you, and you can write your own, and you can distribute these in various ways. And one of the methods they showed us was uh, a thing called a leaflet bomb. Which I had never heard of before this, I have to say. Yes, it's strange. It's never been used anywhere else in the world, really, as far as I know. But, um, you know, at that time, with all the political organizations banned, it was very difficult to distribute literature. And it was quite effective. It was very effective. So it was just a low explosive, you know, kind of firecracker, a couple of teaspoons of gunpowder. And uh, it would throw the leaflets up into the air with a loud bang and they would rain down wherever you put them. Normally you'd put them somewhere like at a railway station, bus station with a lot of people hanging around. And um, so the training also involved um, teaching us security, how to how to conduct ourselves in the underground, how to send uh, secret messages, and basically how to run an an underground cell. I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to interrupt you here. We're going to take an ad break, and then when we come back, I'm I'm going to dig a bit deeper because I think you've given quite a a vanilla version of how you actually became involved in the ANC. So we're going to go a bit deeper into that after this break. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I'm back with my guest, Tim Jenkin, and we are talking about his book, Escape from Pretoria, which is very literally his story about his escape from Pretoria Central Prison back in 1979. And Tim, before the break, you were talking about your involvement. As I said, this isn't merely an adventure story about how you escaped from prison, which all sounds very exciting. It's actually a story about your your political background, how you you came to be arrested, and there's a lot more going on here than just, um, oh, very exciting, you were arrested, you went into prison, and you managed to escape, which is something that literally very few people managed to do. But you... You were talking about how you you became involved in politics, how you had very little awareness of apartheid when you were growing up in the the early 70s, which I think was the case with with quite a lot of us. I mean, myself, I came to South Africa in 1975 from the UK and similar to you, had very little awareness of, of any political goings on at all. And like you said, you went to to the UK after you finished school, and only then did you become aware when people started questioning you about it, and I had a similar situation. But after you finished school and um, when you you went to university and you met the the person who who became one of your very close friends and who was actually arrested with you eventually – you then went back, you, you formed quite a network when you were at, at university in Cape Town and, and you were exchanging, you know, banned material and books that you shouldn't have been reading and there was quite a network going on there. 
And then after you finished studying, you went back to the UK because you want you wanted to find out how you could become involved. You didn't want to live here in an environment that that you couldn't support. And you literally went knocking on doors and you knocked on the door of the ANC office. You found out where it was. It was a very um, inobtrusive place and, you know, literally a door, an unmarked door in a kind of crappy little building. And they told you, you, you know, you can't just come knocking on doors and we'll meet you around the corner. And that's how you started meeting quite interesting people, including Ronnie Castrol. He was just introduced to you as, oh, hey, this is Ronnie. And you later discovered who it was. You, you started to meet quite big players. And you, you speak about your training in, in quite – you play it down. You're quite humble about it. But what you were doing was, was really important work. And did, did you not know that at the time? Yes, of course, we knew it at the time. Uh, um, I just didn't know how much detail I could go into in, <laughs> in this interview. But, um, yes, it's correct. Um, you know, we did meet them uh, sort of secretly the first time, but then um, we we kind of perhaps unwisely went to political gatherings and things which we shouldn't have been doing, and they should have advised us not to do these things. Like we went to protests outside South Africa House, where we know that the uh, South African police would always photograph everybody there. So those weren't very wise things to do. But, you know, when we were doing that, we had no idea that we were going to go back. We were just trying to educate ourselves. So we perhaps did a few unwise things. Um, Yeah, and then, as I said, when when we indicated that we were going back, they did uh, give us... Quite a comprehensive training, you know. It was in many aspects, including what happens if you do if you do get arrested. How do you deal with interrogation? Um, you know, in those days, a lot of people died in detention. Yes. And um, you know, they they gave us books to read of people who'd been prisoners in similar situations, not necessarily in South Africa, but. You know, even World War Two stories of prisoners of war and so on, and how how they what the tricks they use when when you when they're trying to interrogate you and get information out of you. So it was very all very useful stuff, and then of course the security stuff, how to obtain um, equipment, how to obtain um, a, a working um, office or. or room somewhere where we could set up shop, print shop, and make all this equipment. So it was, it was quite a, a thorough thorough training. So we were sort of learned all the spy craft, so to speak, <laughs> how to work out if someone's following you and how to follow someone else yourself and all the tricks of the trade. Yeah, so then... And, and also, I mean, you had to, you had to come back to South Africa and you you needed to immerse yourself into normal everyday life really. You had to come back and, you know, live with your families, get jobs and make out like you were, you know, just returning from basically being on holiday for a while. You obviously didn't want to call attention to yourselves. You didn't want people to know that you were now part of, of some undercover covert operation. 
and you needed to find jobs and you were lucky enough to actually find a job that, that supported what you were doing. Yes, uh, that's correct. It, it was a, a, it was a completely double life. You know, you had to do a lot of subterfuge. You had to lie a lot to people. I mean, even your own family and relatives and friends and girlfriends and everything. You had to create this impression that you were just normal, boring, white South African with no political views whatsoever, no interest in what's going on, completely grey sort of character with no concerns for, you know, the political situation in the country. And even if someone says something challenging, you were just going to pretend you're not interested. And you had to, not only in your speech, but in your mode of living, you had to spend time doing things that were for us a kind of waste of time, but it showed that you were just living a normal life, such as spending a lot of time on the beach and yeah. <laughs> going to movies and all that kind of normal stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Extremely difficult for you, obviously. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that was, was very tough for you. Yes. So well, yes, having to lie to family and friends yes. is, is not great, but you know, that was, that was, uh, that was the business, that what you had to do under the circumstances. And, um, you know, especially when, uh, we ourselves carried out actions such as these leaflet bombings and, and very often they would make the headlines in the newspapers. So just that fact alone was more effective than what was distributed by the leaflet bombs. So it kind of told everyone who read the newspaper that the ANC is active and doing stuff and <laughs> creating mayhem in the city and so on. And you had to you had to act surprised and go. Wow. And we had to act surprised, you know. You go to a party and everyone will even be discussing stuff. Oh, I see some terrorists have been blowing up bombs again. You know, it's always kind of exaggerated. And then we would just say, yeah, terrible, terrible you know, typical terrorists, and you know, forget about it. <laughs> Talking about ourselves. <laughs> so yeah. talk talk me through what actually happened in the lead up to your arrest. Well, this is a very common question, you know, people ask, how do you... How, how did you get how caught? How do I think I, the police got onto us? But um, I think what happens is, you know, um, even at university when we were still trainee <laughs> activists, we did stupid things, I suppose, went to protest meetings and, uh, and there were street meetings in Cape Town at, and at UCT during that, those years. And I guess, well, we know there were a lot of informers at university. So even if you say the wrong thing or if someone sees you reading the wrong kind of book, uh, someone takes a note of it and then uh, a file is opened on you. And then little bits of information uh, get added to that file. And then we went abroad. As I said, we did things that were that we shouldn't have been doing, like attending protest meetings. Yeah, and rallies. and Rallies and so on and so forth. And I suppose each time there's a picture or just a report and a name and another sheet goes into your file. file. And then uh, we're back in South Africa, in Cape Town and also in Johannesburg, doing things. And, uh, you know, they... They forensically study every single action and every single leaflet 
to make connections. Uh, easily they could see that the leaflet bombs that were going off in Cape Town were identical to the ones going off in Johannesburg. And then they would study every leaflet and uh, determine how many typewriters had typed the messages or the pamphlets or how they were produced or what kind of envelopes we were using to post and which yeah. letterbox were posted in. Sure. So they put it all together, you know. Yeah. And in a way, you kind of uh, draw a circle around yourself. So if you imagine that they're in their ops room, they've got a map, and every time something happens, they stick a drawing pin into where it happened. And in that way, uh, after a couple of years, a whole lot of drawing pins would sort of circle you. Yeah, a pattern starts to form. A <laughs> pattern. And then they would go to their files and start looking at people in that area and then maybe start following a few of them, eliminate some of them, maybe you're down to a handful of people. And um, then, you know, through a process of elimination like that, they work out it's you and then they follow you. And even though we were trained, we still, after two and a half years, if nothing happened, you become a bit blasé and you stop yeah. being um, very observant. You know, that's a kind of weakness. It's a weakness yeah. that we exploited in the prison as well because, you know, the same thing happened with the guards because nothing yes. happened. So they uh, stopped watching you closely. So the so, same so thing you, to us. So yeah. you, you get arrested and you, you go to prison and you got 12 years. Your accomplice got eight Yes. Um, cause they figured you were the mastermind behind all of this. And I mean, from, from the minute you, you were arrested, from the minute you, you were sentenced and you, you went to prison and there was absolutely no doubt in your minds that you were, you were not staying the course. You were breaking out of there and you, you had someone in, inside who, who told you that, that attempts had been made. No one had succeeded. And your response to that was yet. No one has succeeded yet. And there's there's a brilliant quote that I absolutely love when it dawns on you how you're going to do this. And um, I, I might not be quoting exactly. It's something like you don't have to know everything. You only need to know enough. And you start with what you know. I love that. Because yes. Yes. you just need what you know. And, and I love that. And I loved how... Um, I mean, I love how Dennis Goldberg was portrayed in the film. He's just, and I know I'm referring to the film and we're meant to be talking about books, but Dennis Goldberg, I mean, he's, he's a bit of a legend. Um, and he was, he was a bit of a, he was your inside man. I mean, he was, he kind of ran the prison. Um, he ran the, the system inside really. And he was, he kind of knew what was what there, but so you, you, you formulated formulated the system of how you were going to get out. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know whether this is a controversial question or not. Did you think about the impact that your breakout was going to have on the people that you left behind inside? Oh, yes, of course, uh, we did. And, I mean, we discussed that amongst ourselves uh, thoroughly, you know, and... and um, 
If you read the book, uh, it doesn't come out in the film, but at one stage, practically all of us were going to escape. Um, uh, there were only, so there were ten of us there, and I think seven or eight of us were going to escape. Some decided not to because they were due for release in a year or two, so they felt there's, there's no point. Um, so everyone was completely aware, you know, uh, um, stories circulated in the prison about what happened, what happens if you do escape. We know that uh, even from our own short experience at uh, while still awaiting trial, they told us, and in fact, we saw some prisoners who had attempted escape, and what they do is they chain your legs together and you have to walk around with a chain for six months. You can't even remove your trousers. You have special trousers that buttoned up the sides, so <laughs> a back part and a front part, and you're held in solitary confinement. So they take it very, very seriously if you escape. But of course, they weren't escaping, but we knew that, uh, um, you know, they, they would take it very seriously and they'd probably change all this conditions and certainly the security in the prison. And uh, I mean, uh, and they did. I mean, they, they moved they them and rebuilt did, yes. the whole the whole section. Yes, yes. They moved them out and rebuilt the prison and then brought them back again. And, and a yeah, very different prison after that. Very different after that. Mm. And I mean, the guards in the first place were, I mean, they, they were, they were brutal. They were cruel. They were brutal. And the way they treated you was, was absolutely awful. Well, they're not, they weren't as brutal as shown in the film. You know, in the film, you've got to create this impression of sort of, you know, like Gestapo type guards. But yeah, that's exactly they, how they were portrayed. They weren't really like that, you know. Um, um, the guards, too, it's stressful for them to have to be shouting and screaming at us. So we had a kind of agreement, you know, um, that if we cause no problems for them, they'll cause no problems for us. And so we had a kind of hands-off approach and... Uh, uh, you know, it was quite civil, really. They never shouted at us like they did in the film. They weren't abusive. I wouldn't say they were nice, but they were just doing an everyday job, and I suppose they were pretty much like you'd find guards in any prison. They didn't, they didn't torture us or make life difficult. But that's, you know, the policy for political prisoners was different. So, Yes. They were just carrying out the policies of the higher-ups, and that was, you know, no newspapers and uh, limited visits and letters and and other conditions. Right. We're going, to take ways, a, we're going to take a bit of a break now, and um, we are going to – there's a little quirk in the film that I'll, I'm going to mention, but we'll, we'll do that after the break. I love it when you – this is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I am back with my guest, Tim Jenkins. We are talking about his escape from Pretoria. He broke out of Pretoria Central Prison in 1979, and he wrote a book about that. There is also a film starring Daniel Radcliffe playing Tim Jenkins himself. And I mentioned before that there's a little quirk in the film, and Tim, am I correct? There is a scene where Daniel Radcliffe, playing you, is sitting waiting in the visitor's room. He's waiting for someone to come and visit him. 
and sitting right next to him chatting to a visitor is you. Yeah, correct. (laughs) I thought that that was fabulous. (laughs) I love that. Yes, I had this little minor role um, just to be there, really, for 30 seconds or something. (laughs) Playing a political prisoner, who knew? Yes, playing a political, but I was just some random political prisoner. It was very strange sitting next to someone who's playing me, and I'm just a no-name prisoner. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely mm. brilliant. I love quirks like that. That, that really worked for me. Well yeah. done. Good role. <laughs> Your film debut. Um, so we, we've been talking about the fact that this, this isn't just a, an adventure story. It's not just a story about this guy who gets arrested and who breaks out of prison because – I mean, obviously, you. I mean, you studied sociology. We, we said at, at university, yes. but clearly, you have an incredible, an incredible engineering mind. Well, Would you say that? yes, I guess you could say that. But uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was fortunate. My father was a very handy guy, and he sort of used to make furniture. So he had a well kitted out uh, workshop. And um, he taught me a lot of things. And at school, I studied um, um, woodworking and metalworking, which you don't get these days. But in those days, it was an option. Uh, very useful, practical courses. It turned out to be very useful kid, for you. I, yeah, as a kid, I was used to make models and used to love making things with my hands and fixing bicycles and later on motorbikes and things. So I had a very... Uh, mechanical bent and I knew how to use tools. Uh, to make keys was quite a simple thing and even knowing how a lock works, you know, the curious mind always used to open things and just to see how they work. So I knew what was inside a lock and more or less how it worked. So it wasn't a, wasn't a, you know, an amazing thing. But, but nowadays, I mean, all these things work um, electronically. It's all mechanical. It's all, um, you know, it's not it's not controlled really by locks and keys anymore. As far as I know, I've never been in prison, um, but from what I can tell, um, it doesn't really work like that anymore. Am I well, correct uh, in saying that? I'm not sure about that. I haven't been back to the prison, but um, <laughs> one of the three of us went back um, maybe about 10 years ago to look at the prison and took some photographs, and it didn't look an awful lot different. Um, oh, interesting. There might have been some electronic, electronically operated doors closing off sections and things, but the actual cell door locks look pretty much the same. Interesting. And I've done a search for South African prisons, and when I look, uh, it's the same old locks, you know. <laughs> sure. Mm. That's quite incredible, actually. So, so now we've so we've moved on, and you you left prison, and we're we're, we're talking about nowadays. I know you're not not politically active anymore. And, and another quote that I actually loved: um, you say that politics is a reality show that serves to distract us from what's really going on. Yes, brilliant something, something absolutely like brilliant. I think one of the th- things that we realised. After 1994, when when things didn't really change or didn't change to the degree that we'd hoped they would, we started to look at things again. And 
it was clear that having won the political struggle, nothing much changed, and then we we were had to question what's going on. Because our belief was once you've achieved political power, then you have all power, and you can just issue commands and regulations and rules and laws and so on, and you can fashion the society like that, but it doesn't really work work like like that. that. And we discovered that the world is rarely run by the guys who control the money. Yeah. So it's the bankers and the financial organizations and the big mega corporations that straddle the world, and these are bigger than entire countries, and they, they control governments. So government is not really... At the top of the pyramid, they sort of several layers down, and they take the orders from from higher powers. And so, um, coming to that realization, we discovered that <laughs> we never won the economic struggle in this country, and you can't really because the whole world is now controlled by mega corporations. We can see that even in the most powerful countries of the True. world. Very true. You know, the U.S. government is bought and sold. You know, it's all of them are working for corporations. Or the moment they leave politics, they go back to some corporation. Yeah. So, so it would be it would actually be safe to say then that you realised that after all that, all the fight and all the struggle, you actually weren't really well at the time. You thought you were you were you were fighting for a political cause, but what you were actually fighting for and struggling against was actually for a human cause. That's right. And 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 that that is still what you are that's what you stand for now. Yes, that's correct. That is what you stand for now. And I love um towards the end of your book, you actually give what I would call guidelines for life really. Because you you talk about um you know how to set your goals and Basically, how to live your life because mm. because you say that um, trying out your ideas provides experience and feedback, and overcoming distractions along the way actually changes the situation that existed when you started out. Yes, yes. And and that this is fabulous advice. Yes, well, the escape uh, provided me with a kind of philosophy for life, or at least. Uh, um, a way of tackling uh, life's challenges or not necessarily even your own personal challenges but whatever challenges you come up against or you've, you're part of. So the escape itself is a beautiful analogy for for life. You know, we all find ourselves trapped in, in yes. various situations and we seek ways to relieve ourselves whether that trap is, you know, a job or a relationship or just not achieving your goals. Um, if you see it as a prison, then every escape from a prison consists of two parts. Well, I suppose also the one of getting into it, they could say is a three parts. <laughs> Starting from your prison, there's two things. One is getting out of the prison, and the second part is getting away from it, or in other words, securing your freedom. Yes. There's no point if you escape and then get recaptured. Absolutely. Um, even if not immediately, but later on. So you could say that our struggle to eliminate apartheid was 
trying to get out of the apartheid prison and yeah. we escaped from that. And in 1994, we thought we'd achieved freedom, but we didn't secure that freedom. No. So no. We got recaptured in a sense. Um, as I was saying, the yeah. higher powers that put us back in prison and all those beautiful policies that the liberation movements had yeah. were thrown away and um, some other kind of policies were uh, put in place, yeah. policies not decided by by the ANC or at least the, the leadership at that time. Yeah, We're going to take one final break and then we'll be back with a wrap-up. I love it when you this is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am back wrapping up with my guest, Tim Jenkin, and we have been chatting about his book, Escape from Pretoria, which is literally about his escape from Pretoria Central Prison back in 1979. And as we've been saying, the book is not simply um, an adventure story about his escape from prison, but also um, a directive on, on life. It's a lot of life hacks, life tips. And it's a story about, you know, how to, how to live your life. And as I said, towards the end of the book, Tim gives a lot of, of direction and a lot of um, tips, as I say, on how to live your life. And, and a very interesting one that I suppose might not be expected from someone who has spent time in prison, although obviously it wasn't for, for any huge crime like, like, God forbid, murder or anything like that. Tim says that one should always take a non-confrontational route and that we should try and look for ways around our obstacles rather than tackling them head on. It's quite an interesting um, take on things, Tim, especially when one looks at, at the way you tackled escaping. And as you say, we, we're talking about not just escaping from a physical prison, but escaping from the things that trap you and escaping from from the, the spiritual, emotional and all other types of, of prisons that we find ourselves in. Going back to the uh, sort of non-violent approach, you know, um, there's a documentary of Escape from Pretoria on YouTube and a lot of the comments below after people have seen the documentary is, why did you go to all that trouble? Why didn't you just bop the guard over the head, take his keys, and then get out, you know. Um, you know, I can't respond to all of these, but surely it's better if you escape without hurting anybody, without killing anybody, without tying up anybody, and you escape completely cleanly, leaving them completely baffled about how you got out. Just suddenly, the next morning, there's three prisoners gone. It's not a yeah. choice. Surely that's way better <laughs> than beating someone over the head. And imagine if we'd been caught and we'd we'd um, assaulted the guard. You know, it would have been far worse. Yeah, imagine the consequences. Yes. Mm. So I suppose the same approach to life. You know, if you can if you can achieve your goal without using violence, without hurting others, um, surely that's much better. You know, it might be I a agree. slower. I agree. Might. It'll be a clean escape. It'll be your achievement. It's not at the expense of someone else. So it's basically just, you know, that life rule, do no harm to others. Or I agree. And when it's at the expense of someone else, you know, often it's at your expense as well, isn't it? So I would definitely have to agree with that. 
Tim, I have to thank you so much for your time. I mean, it's not often that, that I get to speak to someone who's broken out of prison. It's not often I get to speak to someone who is portrayed by Daniel Radcliffe in a film. That's that that in itself also, and and who who portrays a political prisoner in a film randomly. Yeah. <laughs> um, as I say, just love that because little quirks like that in films just you know, do something for me. I know some people find that weird. But um I I love I assume you're living quite a quiet life now. So I do, yes. I spend a lot of time uh, hiking, still do running, so I keep very fit. And, in case uh, in case someone asks you to break out of prison sometime soon. Might end up there again. <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't sound still, like it. it really doesn't sound like it. <laughs> Still active, you know, still very concerned about things. And, uh, but I don't uh, operate through political parties anymore. There's many other ways of making a mark on the world. And, um. But I really do appreciate the time you've given me this morning. It's been wonderful chatting to you. And I really do appreciate that. So thank you for that. It's been a pleasure, Janice. Thank you. And for you listening, as always, take care of each other, wear your mask, and until next time, read a book.